Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. This month, we're talking to Joe Haboush. He's a physician and the CEO and co-founder of MD Calc, a tool that many of us use on a daily basis in our practice. Today, we're going to be talking to him about a new set of tools that MD Calc and EB Medicine are releasing for COVID-19 and also about his experience as an emergency physician working in New York City. And before we dive into that interview, I want to remind you about the Emergency Medicine Practice article on COVID-19 that just recently underwent a massive update with all of the information from our colleagues in Italy and all the information you heard Dr. Duca share a couple of weeks ago on this podcast. And now, without any further ado, here's Dr. Habush. Hey, Sam. Thanks so much for having me here. This is Joe Habush. I'm the co-founder and CEO of MD Calc, and I'm a practicing emergency doctor here in New York City at NYU and Bellevue Medical Centers. So right in the middle of uh, COVID land. Fantastic. Thanks, Joe, for being with us today. I really appreciate, appreciate you taking the time. The COVID-19 Resource Center is a brand new area that just launched on the MD Calc website. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, once COVID started becoming such a heated topic, so many folks who use MD Calc have been reaching out to us. And, you know, MD Calc was started by um, two emergency physicians. So it was born out of emergency medicine, but it's actually used broadly across medicine. So our best numbers were um, that about two-thirds of U.S. doctors, at least, are using us regularly, which is insanely wow. broad. It's still owned and run by Graham Walker and I. Um, we've never taken outside funding or entertained acquisition offers because we're such purists with this, and we run it through a small team here in New York City. Um, but you can imagine with so many different doctors, uh, internists, ID docs, critical care docs, and of course, emergency docs using us. And emergency docs, it's I don't know, 85 plus percent, you know, using us regularly. So many people were reaching out saying, you know, what tools do you have or suggesting tools for us to focus on? And so we decided this is a huge opportunity for us to potentially help this unprecedented crisis that we're all facing and will be facing for a long time. So we built that into a COVID Resource Center, and every few days we're editing it, adding into it, and uh, expanding it. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do that, because I'm looking at it now as we're speaking. Uh, let's start at the top of the list. So we're looking at some, uh, some helpful calculators for people who are treating COVID patients, right? And you've got these divided into some categories, but these are primarily categories uh, almost kind of serially as you might encounter the patient from their initial entrance to the ED all the way through their hospitalization and hopefully uh, ultimately discharge home. So uh, tell me what you're thinking at first when you're trying to organize all of this information. We are trying to provide clinical support that's useful at the bedside so that you can come to it with the function in mind. Am I screening a patient early on? Am I needing to admit a patient for sending them home versus the ICO versus intubation versus ECMO, et cetera. So all of these clinical questions may or may not be supported by an evidence-based tool. And so we've got a lot of quests around those and we thought we could as much as possible categorize them in that useful way. So we've been continually 
tweaking that, but that's where this focus is. So now we're, we're at the end of March and understanding that this is going to change, you know, daily, weekly, whenever more evidence rolls in, we're looking at categories like the initial evaluation, general hospital management, intensive care treatment, specific calculators for ARDS, and then finally kind of a scarce resource allocation category there at the bottom. So when we're talking about initial evaluation, we've got two scoring systems in there, and that kind of involves both initial evaluation and pre-hospital management. That's the Roth score and center criteria. What can you tell me about those two briefly? So briefly, initial evaluation, I I wish there was a better evidence-based tool, and there's a ton of tools out there that folks are building protocols, et cetera. And we've had a lot of requests to add all these different types. And they're, they're often similar and they're constantly changing based on the availability of testing, based on the changing evidence around or changing information around this disease. Because the truth is we don't have much evidence there. So we've made a decision not to include protocols such as when do I send a patient to the ER? or when to test the patient, because those things are local and they're changing, and none of that is evidence-based in the way that we typically have scores on MD-Calc. So what we do have there is the old center criteria for strep pharyngitis versus viral pharyngitis, because a lot of telemedicine doctors or ER doctors who are working, doing a lot of virtual urgent care visits, because we're doing a lot more of those, at least in New York City and also around the country, have said that that's a tool that they find useful. And then the Roth score is a new score that we added on. And like some of the other scores we've added on, we're doing something different. Typically on MDCalc, we will not add a score unless it's very well externally validated and based on a lot of evidence. And the Roth score is not. It's, it's an interesting score that attempts to allow telemedicine clinicians to estimate hypoxia by doing a test where they ask a patient to take a deep breath and count from one to 30 in their native language and see how, what number they can get to and how many seconds they can go before they have to take a breath. Um, so we've actually, you know, we're looking to do some validation studies in COVID patients. And for so many of these scores, they were not created in COVID patients. So we're trying to make suggestions on not only how much evidence is currently backing up each of these tools, but also how it may or may not act differently in this new kind of disease, because rarely are these validated in COVID patients. Yeah, I could see how both of those could apply to someone who has COVID, even though they haven't necessarily been studied specifically in those populations. So that's at least some helpful way to objectively quantify a disease with minimal information, kind of what you're getting from the pre-hospital setting. And then when we move into hospital management, you've got a couple of different resources there. One that's going to be coming out of Italy in their experience. Tell me more about that. This is Dr. Dr. Duca, who we interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, along with his comrades over in Milan. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, these folks in Italy on the front lines have developed their own way to categorize the severity of COVID patients within the hospital. So these are intensivists, not emergency physicians, but hey, we work so closely together. And the idea is for them to categorize the severity 
of the COVID patients that are con and they're constantly recategorizing these patients as they get sicker or less sick. And when they're managing them throughout the hospital, they can easily refer to these patients. And now that I've been working a bunch of shifts with a lot of COVID patients, I really get it. You know, in emergency medicine, our brains are really good at remembering a lot of details about a couple dozen patients at one time. And when all of your patients have URI and COVID-like symptoms, it can become quite difficult to remember all of that. And you can imagine intensivists could have many, many more patients than, than we have in the ER. So having a good system that allows you to categorize what level of severity they have. And in Italy, they were mapping that level of severity sometimes to, a, to different treatment protocols. Now, those treatment protocols are going to change, right? We're constantly getting every few days, every day, we're getting new evidence on whether or not a medication may work or not work. We're, we're living in this paucity of data space where we have to make decisions. So it's going to be fluid. But developing a severity scale that we can all start using as we take on more and more of these sick COVID patients, I think is brilliant. So we're really excited to be launching this and work directly with these Italian physicians who, who created it and have been using it at the front lines. That's great. I really appreciate you guys putting the work into that. I have personally experienced those days on shift where uh, I even have just a handful of patients who have similar complaints. They're of similar age and it's very easy to confuse one with another and you start getting a little foggy headed. Like uh, I can't remember which patient had what for medical history and risk factors. So this, I cannot only, I can only imagine what it's like to have every patient look exactly the same and, uh, and to have a very similar presentation and how, how quickly confusing that can get. So I really appreciate you guys putting the work into helping spread the, the knowledge that's within these tools. So uh, another score that we use is that we launched, even though it's not externally validated, is the Mobista score. And this is a score for viral pneumonia severity. So just like a lot of folks might know CURB-65 or PSI port score, which help predict the mortality of patients who have pneumonia, this attempts to do that, but specifically with viral pneumonia. It came out of China just a few months before COVID became a big issue. And if you look at the inputs, it actually maps to what we see as severity and know as severity in, in um, COVID. So it, it would make sense that this might be a good, a good uh, tool to use. Again, it's not been validated in this patient population, like none of these really have, but it's something to look at if you wanna get that early home versus admit decision. We mentioned the ALC here too, because it looks like lymphopenia is not just a marker of the disease, but probably, again, based on small numbers, it seems to be mapped to um, severity of the disease. And in our review on our site, NNT review, it might have an odds ratio of over eight. That means eight times as likely to die from the disease if your ALC is below 0 0.8. And you see this, you see this in all these patients, they come in and they have high inflammatory markers, high D-dimers, sometimes high trope, CRP, um, and then a low ALC. And the sicker patients, it, it becomes more extreme. Now, if you're listening and you're not familiar with the abbreviation ALC, you're talking about absolute lymphocyte count. That's right. They get lymphopenia, which you see in viruses and has been mapped in, for example, H5N1 also had it not just mapped to the chance of having H5N1, but also mapped to within diagnosis of H5N1 
to mortality. There was a mortality predictor. And so it's something that happens with some viruses. Now, this is lymphopenia irrespective of, of total white blood cell count, right? So they could still have a leukocytosis with a lymphopenia or a normal white blood cell count with a lymphopenia. Exactly. You see all of the above, sometimes low white cells, sometimes high white cells, but the ALC is the, core, the, the key thing to look for as far as, as far as mortality predictor. Fantastic. And then, you know, ap applicable, I think, more in the intensive care unit setting, but as hospitals become overwhelmed and more of us end up managing these patients in emergency departments as they're either holding for floor beds or holding for ICU beds, you've got some ARDS calculators as well or some scoring systems there. Help me understand what kind of setting I would be using these in. Sam, you got it totally right. You know, as we get, right now, we have enough resources, but as we become more resource constrained and we get more and more sick patients, making the right decision on who can, is safe on the floor, who's safe at home, who needs to be in the ICU, who should be intubated, who should we put on ECMO, when can we take the patient off intubation? Those decisions are more and more important. So we're hoping to provide the tools to help doctors make those decisions because especially when we're restrained with resources, it's gonna be critically important. So a couple of these things. So the um, RSBI is a way to predict whether a patient who's intubated is ready to be extubated. Um, a couple other scores, you know, a lot of these patients aren't just dying from viral pneumonia, but from ARDS. And so evaluating for ARDS, we have a whole bunch of scores that are up there. Um, and specifically when a patient should be considered for ECMO, another, very scarce resource that we need to be careful about um, only giving to the patients who really, who really need it. The classic scale or score for when a patient should go on ECMO is through, is called the Murray score. And it was the main score used in what was called the Caesar trial, which is a um, seminal trial in, in ECMO. Um, so you can look that up. It's called the Murray score. And again, it's on our resource center. There's another score called the RESP score, which helps predict if you're on ECMO, your chances of, of living. So if you want to see who is most likely to benefit from ECMO, a combination of the Murray score and the RESP score might be helpful. Another question, as we see more and more patients with this infection, especially in the elderly and say, uh, in scenarios where ventilators are a scarce resource and we're trying to have conversations with people about their wishes, what their chances of recovery are. Have you seen any calculators that will predict mortality either based on current presentation or even mortality after intubation, you know, so you could have a conversation with somebody and say, you know, you're 92 years old, you have multiple medical problems, you're already on CPAP therapy, and you're failing. And at this point, we have to make the decision about whether or not we're going to intubate you. Here's a reasonable number you could use when trying to decide, you know, what, what the chances of survival are if we proceed with intubation. Yeah, there are several mortality calculators out there for that. And that's a critically important question to, to look at in, in a couple scenarios. One is um, when we have to make this decision of intubate or not, should we continue watching this patient and giving them higher levels of oxygen and trying to stave off intubation or should we intubate them early? And there's been a lot of debate on when to try to intubate. For example, 
originally a lot of folks seeing these patients were trying to avoid bypass and high flow nasal cannula to not spread the virus around and early intubation was considered the right way to go. But these patients don't get intubated for a day or two like they would with maybe bacterial pneumonia. You clear the pneumonia with good antibiotics and you can maybe wean them off. They get, they're on the ventilator for weeks typically. So A, for the patient, we have to decide when to intubate them and when to not and, and looking at the mortality benefits on both those paths is something that's not easy to do, but we should look at. And there's a bunch of scores that can try to look at all of these things, right? There's the SOFA and the modified SOFA is another one, um, Charleston comorbidity index and, and a few others are common ones. In addition to that, there's the concept of ventilator allocation structures or scarce resource allocation structures. Another term people use are crises standards of care. This is when we have a scarce resource and we need to figure out how to allocate the, that scarce resource. And it's one of these topics that I think we all learn about at some point in med school and in training, but we don't think we'll ever have to face. And while we haven't faced that yet, we know there's a possibility of that. Now, fortunately, a lot of experts have looked at this and weighed in on this. A lot of states have allocation structures and at least some best practices. And so one thing that a lot of medical centers um, are doing and should be doing is to build their crisis standards of care and general structures around this. A lot of those have some input of a clinical score. SOFA or modified SOFA are common. Charleston comorbidity, like I mentioned, also is common. But it's important to see that it, it can't just be one score. Just like anything in medicine, it can't just be one score that you outsource this to. Something else that's important with these structures is almost always they recommend that the practicing physician isn't the person who makes the ultimate decision because of the psychological stress on the physician to make such decisions is, is too, too much that we need to have structures to allow folks outside of the bedside setting help make those decisions if it comes to the point of making those types of decisions. Along that same line, there is actually a, a separate section of this resource center devoted specifically to the, the resource limited situations. And in it, there are actually several helpful things. One of them is, is actually just a table, kind of a visualization of risk factors associated with mortality in people infected with COVID-19. So we've got Chinese data, we've got South Korea data, uh, and then we've got data comparing to just standard community-acquired pneumonia for, for comparison. And the calculators listed below include things like the uh, CURB-65 score, the PSI port score, uh, and this is really just to kind of answer the initial branch question of, you know, we know they have these risk factors, we know we have these medical problems, and is it time to admit or discharge uh, in a situation where, say, beds are scarce and the hospital's full and you're overwhelmed already. And then there is even then a second section here where we talk about odds ratios and mortality risk. And, and I found this particularly interesting, but before we dive into this, let's take a two-second timeout. And if you can explain to me, again, just for our listeners, the, the odds ratio and how that relates to, say, a patient in front of me, you know, how would you explain this to your patient today? What does an odds ratio mean? 
at a high level, an odds ratio is increased risk for that patient if they fall within that category versus if they fall outside of that category. So for example, um, we all know that increased higher age is a risk factor for death in almost any disease, right? The more important question is how much of a risk factor it is. So the way we approach this NNT review of the odds ratios for COVID is to not just look at the odds ratios, but to compare it to what you and I and practicing physicians have a gestalt on, which is bacterial pneumonia. So we have a sense for the risks and um, across different categories when someone has bacterial pneumonia. And what we thought would be useful for the practicing physician is to compare these odds ratios with the odds ratios of that disease that we all are very familiar with. And what you see here is, yeah, sure, age over 60 is a risk factor for bacterial pneumonia and for COVID. But it's much more so, much, much more so for COVID, at least when you look at this Chinese and South Korea data. So for bacterial pneumonia, you can see if you're over 60, your chances of dying from bacterial pneumonia is about five times that of being under 60. The odds ratio is 5.2 in some classic data review. Out of the Chinese cohort for COVID, the odds ratio for being over 60 is a 10 times difference. So it's a much stronger effect. And if you look at the South Korea data, which is a little bit you know, South Korea was able to, to, to test a lot more patients than China has. Now, they didn't test asymptomatic folks, but they tested lower, milder symptoms. And what they found is a lot more people in their 20s and 30s, this is actually another graphic that we have in this same review, um, tested positive, but, but did well. They had mild symptoms. And if you do the math on that, data set, you find that the odds ratio of being over 60 is over 30. In other words, your chance of dying if you're over 60 is 30 times as likely as if you're under 60. This bug is nasty and it really attacks the elderly. So the, the takeaway here is protect your loved ones who are over 60. Don't expose them to the virus. And our colleagues, who are older, I think we should have them work less COVID-facing or no COVID-facing shifts if we can afford to have the younger folks there. Dave, that's a great point you're making. Now, these, these odds ratio risk factors, are they cumulative? So for example, if I'm looking at a patient who's over 60 and they have diabetes and they have chronic lung disease, am I adding up those odds ratios? Is it, is it a mathematical kind of simple math or is that more complex? More complex. I'm so glad you're asking that because if you don't have patient level data to do what we call a multiple regression analysis, you can't multiply odds ratios like that. And a lot of folks don't get that. You know, we talk about, um, have you heard of the term enumeracy? <laughs> no. I would argue enumeracy. I have to give you my background. Before I became a doctor, I was a math major. I'm a math nerd at heart. I was the captain of my math team in high school. I started a cheer that was, whoa, 3.141592. That was a, literally the cheer of our math team. And then I became a doctor. So the MD calc thing kind of makes sense. And one thing we talk about a lot is how so many people, there's not that many illiterate people, but there's a lot of people who are enumerate, especially with more 
sophisticated statistical concepts. And that includes in medicine, right? These things are confusing and we aren't trained well in it. And so one of our goals in MDCalc is to try to make these concepts simpler. But one very important thing to see is that if you have two different risk factors and you fall into those categories, you can't just multiply those together. That's not the appropriate way to combine pre-test and post-test probabilities. Because it might be that if you have the first risk factor, almost everyone who has the first one also has the second one. So you can't, it doesn't double your chances of, of, of death. Gotcha. And that's why you have to do a more sophisticated analysis of data and you need patient level data for that, which we don't have access to here. And that's why when we did this analysis, we separately reported these odds ratios. I'm very glad you asked that because a lot of people don't get that right. And then also in the figure, you said, uh, you hinted at this earlier, but looking at the South Korea data, you know, many of us have heard that younger patients are either minimally affected or maybe aren't even getting the infections. There was very little in the way of young adult and even children reported to have the disease, but South Korea kind of cast a wider blanket for testing. And in figure two there on the NNT review, we can see that there's there's even a spike there in the kind of you know early 20s to mid 20s range of patients testing positive and they may not necessarily be the ones at risk for any kind of morbidity or mortality but it's interesting to see that you know as we talk about protecting our loved ones especially those people who are at risk that just because you're young doesn't mean that you can then go and care for these people because you may be the the vector to bring this disease to them that's right. Based on this South Korea and China data, my takeaway is young people spread it and, old, and elderly and people with comorbidities get sick. That said, a pattern we're seeing emerging in the United States, especially in New York, is that a lot of young patients are coming in quite sick. And we're not sure what to make of it, to be frank. And I say that because our testing in the U.S. is just not robust. We really are playing catch up. I wish we were testing a whole lot more patients. And my sense is that, um, you know, you start talking to patients or even just people living in New York. And I think a lot of people had this disease before we were doing any of these shutdowns that, that it's been around and a lot of people have it. And the numbers you've seen reported are nowhere close to what they are. So why are we seeing a lot more young people getting sick and admitted to the hospital in the U.S.? Is it that somehow it, it's become a nastier bug in that patient population? Or is it that our culture in the US, especially in the cities like New York City, are a little bit different culturally than in, in Asia, where there's a ton of people between in their 20s to 50s in New York, for example, and other cities in the US that don't live with the elderly. We're not, we, we typically move away. And in addition to that, that same population in the cities interact a ton with other people. I mean, living in New York, you're constantly mixing with different people, going to big events, you're on the subway. So is it that there's a large, huge portion of this younger population that are exposing each other and have all been exposed to this coronavirus? And we're just not, we just don't know that denominator. And now they're all, a bunch of them have gotten sick. Or is it that somehow it's nastier in young patients here than in Asia because of a different virus or because of genetic, re I mean, we just don't know really, but we are seeing um, a good number of sick young patients here in New York City, younger. 
Uh, and then the third figure we'll touch on is this, this laboratory values associated with mortality. Now, this is interesting because I haven't made it a routine part of my practice to get an LDH, but when I'm looking at these odds ratios, that looks to be one that significantly increases your odds of mortality. That's right. And I'll have to point out this figure three lab value odds ratio is based on a smaller study, um, a few hundred patients versus tens of thousands of patients for that first set of data, which looked at age and um, comorbidities as risk factors. So this data is not as strong. That said, the LDH, high LDH risk factor for mortality has an odds ratio of 45 in this data. Um, again, large not kind of confidence intervals around that because it's a small n. The other big ones are CRP, D-dimer, and a low lymphocyte count like we talked about earlier. So we are ordering these standard in all patients. Essentially, um, you know, if a patient looks like they're well enough to go home, we'll, we'll, we might not order anything. We can't, you know, we're, we're not even testing a lot of these patients. We send them home with, with strict quarantine precautions and strict return precautions. But if they're sick enough to come into the hospital, we'll order a whole bunch of labs, not just a CBC and BMP, but also the LDH, CRP, D-dimer, Patients who have a high LDH and a high CRP, those come together almost all the time. In other words, the inflammatory markers are up all at once or not. D-dimer, in, in my anecdotal experience, might be mapped a little bit different. It doesn't always go up, and we can talk about that because D-dimer, there is a theory it's not just an inflammatory market here, but it might be a marker of true clot burden and that clots might be hurting these and maybe killing some of these patients. But that said, high LDH, high CRP, and low lymphocyte count often come together. And so you can't multiply these odds ratios together. They, patients either have them or they don't. And so um, it's a good example of how that going down that mistaken math path um, will lead to error. Yeah. And it's interesting to see numbers like an odds ratio of 45. I mean, these are not odds ratios I'm accustomed to seeing when we're, when we're talking about reading primary literature, when we see odds ratios of like two, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, I, I rarely see numbers in, in this kind of, uh, of category. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's mind blowing to see it. And if you're not used to seeing these things, um, then, then I encourage you to take a trip uh, into nnt.com and just look at the odds ratios for, for simple stuff, you know, like treating hypertension and risk of heart disease and those kinds of things, just for comparison's sake, so you can get a gauge of, you know, for the things we do on a regular, mundane, routine basis compared to these kinds of odds ratios. These are, these are sky high, and it's really helpful to have that data at the bedside when I'm trying to figure out, oh, okay, are, are you really at risk and, and where am I going to put you? Something else to keep in mind when you apply a lab value odds ratio, these lab values change as the disease gets worse, which is not the case of someone's age or comorbidity, right? So if you're coming in with a comorbidity or age, you can rely on that odds ratio. Here on day one, if you look at two patients, one has mild symptoms and gets better after a week. Another patient starts with mild symptoms, gets very sick, and eventually dies from this disease. On day one, they both might have very normal-looking labs. If you check them on day one and you think, oh, they don't have these lab value abnormalities, they're safe, that's, that's kind of missing um, the, the, you know, the 10,000-foot view, which is these labs are changing all the time. If they start going through you know, inflammatory cascade, 
right? They're working toward this disease getting worse. So th th these things change over time. And um, it goes back to one of the other scores that we had in that ICU section called the H score, which is um, looks at a lot of these type of inflammatory markers and tries to predict the cytokine storm, which we believe is what leads to, to the ARDS. So some folks are saying that's the period of time we should be looking at immunomodulators, IL-6 blockers, maybe steroids. The steroid thing is a huge debate because it might hurt early on. It might help during the cytokine storm. So I'm not saying we should use steroids, but, but there is a score that tries to predict when the cytokine storm is coming on. And so if we have treatment algorithms eventually built in for that, there's a value in that. And it looks at the similar stuff that we're looking at here. And it's interesting to see this stuff about D-dimer and, uh, and the possibility that there might be, you know, some, some pulmonary artery thrombosis or, 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 you know, kind of what we traditionally think about PE risk factors in these patients. Because honestly, a lot of these people, you know, at least initially were getting CT imaging of the chest. And I did not see in the literature reports of, you know, massive amounts of pulmonary artery thrombosis and, and, and those kinds of thrombotic complications reported. So it's interesting to see that the, the D-dimer specifically is kind of becoming a, like a surrogate inflammatory marker here. Yeah. You know, as we talked with these Italian docs about the Brescia score, um, they were pointing out that they believe a lot of these patients aren't just dying from viral pneumonia and ARDS and sometimes from myocarditis, but also from large PEs. And they have been anticoagulating and even using um, TPA at times where they feel like they've saved patients. And so they have built into their thinking to look at the heart and look for right uh, RV strain and other signs of large PE and sometimes acting on it. And there's actually one study, um, uh, you know, again, not a great perspective study. These are observational studies um, that uh, came out recently that looked at patients who happened to be on or not on heparin and saw and followed them to see which one if there was mortality differences and they did see some subgroups with mortality differences so if patients had a d-dimer of six times the upper limit of normal or more that group of patients had a statistically significant mortality benefit if they were in the arm that happened to get heparin and also patients who had um something called a sick score, something we don't yet have, have on, a, on MD calc. It's a combination of um, a SOFA score and some other lab values of four or more. Those patients also had mortality benefit. And these mortality benefits that they play out are large. I mean, that six score one had a mortality, benef mortality difference of 40% versus 64%. That's a 24% absolute wow. change in mortality. So that ends up playing out. And again, small data, not perspective but that's an NNT of four. There are a few things we do in medicine that have an NNT of less than 10 for mortality. Wow. It's, yeah, that's, that's a little mind boggling. You think about when we're treating these patients, you know, starting them on heparin. Now this is, it'd be interesting to see as we get more data available, if the heparin benefit is there kind of regardless of imaging, you know, you know do we need to image them for, for a large PE and, and then withhold heparin if they don't have it? Or is there some other mortality benefit there that's not necessarily seen on imaging so that all these patients should just automatically get heparin regardless of what their imaging shows? Right, right. Good point. We don't know if it's a cloud or not no. with these patients, right? Interesting times indeed. Well, 
all of this is uh, is built into MD Calc. So if you don't already have an account, you don't need one, but I strongly recommend it because registering for an account gives you this wonderful favorite section where you can mark all of these calculators that you use frequently, use the app, use it at the bedside, keep an eye on this section because it sounds like this is a process in flux and, uh, and will get updated very regularly with more data as it becomes available. So, so thanks again for putting all of this together. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that and to help all of us out in the house of medicine. Oh, and another reason you should register uh, is that we're about to launch CMEs on MD Calc. And what we're going to do um, as a carrot to bribe you to actually learn more about COVID. Yeah. No strings attached. You go to the COVID resource center, give us our, your email. And then when we launch CMEs, all of the tools that are CMEable in the COVID Resource Center, we're going to give you as free CMEs um, and with no strings attached. And we're going to have other plans that people can buy if they want to buy more CMEs. But um, these all just be free. Um, another thing we're trying to do to support physicians supporting their patients during this period is for the last year and a half, we've been building... Um, and this might be the first time I'm talking about this, actually. Ooh, a sneak a peek. So a sneak <laughs> peek here. The last year and a half, we've been working on something that almost every big medical center in the country is trying to do, which is build clinical decision tools into the electronic health record. And you can imagine we've been contacted by over 50 big medical centers asking us, sometimes countries, asking us to build MD Calc into the HR. So we've built that product and we, we're, we've gone live at a few pilot partners. And um, what we now have decided to do as of a week and a half ago, and very quickly in an accelerated fashion, are building in is taking our COVID resource center and the calcs associated with it, building it as its own app. Currently, it'll, it'll work in Epic systems and offering it for free. So if a hospital is um, willing to rapidly integrate it, um, and we've built a very easy way to integrate it. Then we'll offer, we're offering for free during the entire um, COVID crisis. And we've talked to a whole bunch of hospitals who have said, absolutely, we're stopping everything else we're doing, our IT department included, to work on COVID. And we see this as a valuable resource. So we're really excited that we can, um, you know, find this way to help and support the system and even better integrated way with autofill calculators, an easy way to save to the, to the chart. And, um, you know, early studies of autofills. Um, there's a study that came out of one of our pilot partners, University of Utah, looking at the CHADS VAST score. Cardiologists use this score all the time. And they compared a cardiologist doing the score on their own and our first version of the autofill. And our version um, was more accurate 13.5% of the time. Um, so I'm so excited about how much even just the early versions of our integration, I think will help clinical care. Yeah. And now when you're talking about autofill for our listeners, you know, there's multiple ways that you can integrate decisions, support, and other tools into your electronic health system. One of them allows those kinds of calculators to draw information directly out of a patient's chart, stuff you've documented already, like do they have a history of hypertension? And so instead of pulling up a calculator and entering all of that data again, it just automatically populates it for you and dumps it into your chart, actually making use of a computer's functionality to do something for you instead of having you be the data entry clerk. And so 
it's an exciting time to be practicing medicine in general as the systems get smarter. If you're out there and you're the CEO of Epic or Cerner, I'll put in a plug for just integrating these tools yourselves. And so individual hospitals don't have to keep doing this on a hospital to hospital basis. And then we can all benefit at the same time. Uh, I want to take just a few more minutes then and talk about your experience there in New York. So anybody who's been who's been listening and uh, watching the media knows that New York quickly became the epicenter in the United States, and then others started to crop up across the country. Last week we spoke to Dr. Duca. Uh, excuse me, a couple of weeks ago we spoke to Dr. Duca about his experience in Milan, and I told him it was almost like looking in a crystal ball into our potential future. And as I watched this unfold in New York City, there was some striking similarities there. So how, how is that going? How have you seen your daily practice change? And, and what's it like to be a physician in, in New York City today? I mean, I've been living in New York since three months before 9-11. And I've saw, seen some pretty insane times in New York, 9-11 included, Worked at Beth Israel Hospital during Hurricane Sandy. It was the one out of five ERs that stayed open. That was in the dark part of Manhattan that stayed open for months when all the other hospitals closed and were flooded. Um, I then got recruited to Bellevue, which was the Ebola Center, and ended up being involved in disaster preparedness there. Um, took care of Craig Spencer, who was a colleague of mine. We worked together. We were friends. It's, it's an insane, interesting world of emergency medicine here in New York. And while there's hints of how those things have helped here, this is such a different scenario that I, that, you know, um, I guess I'm very proud of our community of physicians, emergency physicians in general around the country, and especially here in New York, how we've come together and worked with other physicians and through the medical center to, to make, um, to make smart decisions on how to change resources, change areas of the hospital, um, get more ventilators, uh, make more ventilators available, switch people's roles around so that we can allocate the best resources um, and share the best information, which is constantly changing all the time. But it has changed a lot. I mean, our total non URI slash COVID census is down, which I think is good. In general, I hope people with serious non COVID diseases are still coming in. I, I'm a little bit concerned about that. A lot of that's been offloaded to telemedicine. Our number of, um, you know, virtual urgent care visits through our emergency department and others have gone up tremendously. Um, because you can imagine so many patients are worried about the symptoms that they're having and they need to know whether or not to come in. Um, or just non-COVID related stuff that can be, if we can avoid patients coming into the hospital, that saves our resources and doesn't expose them to others. And that's good. So telemedicine has a huge role here. Um, but we're seeing more and more really sick patients come in. And um, I've worked you know, some of these shifts and talked to colleagues in New York and around the country who are seeing more and more of these sick patients. And um, we're just preparing for more because like you said, we're looking into a crystal ball when you look into look at Italy. Um, and as we hope the curve is, is shifted enough by social distancing. Um, but everyone senses that it'll probably get worse before it gets better. 
Now today, you know, this is March 31st. So like I said before, things change on a daily basis. But uh, but today in the news, they discussed the arrival of the, the U.S. Naval Ship Hospital. There was some discussion of tent hospitals set up there in, in Central Park and in kind of the surge capacity, stadium beds, you know, kind of placing patients wherever possible. How's that working out? What we have seen is that most of the emergency departments seem to take an area of the ER, and that ER keep, that area keeps expanding as as uh, the COVID and COVID rule out patients grow in number, and as other patients decrease in number. So, in the emergency department, instead of having respiratory rooms, we have respiratory areas. And the entire time before you enter the place, you're wearing an N95 and a face mask and all the PPE. And you wear it for your whole shift, essentially. And then, you know, use the isolation rooms within those areas for patients who are on, um, who are getting intubated or might be on high flow nasal cannula or BiPAP, which we think can help, it might, might spread the virus. So we put them in isolation rooms and we're more careful with those patients. Um, and we are creating more and more sort of uh, standard, more standard, quote unquote, standard approaches for these patients. They're changing all the time. That's why I put them in quotes, but they're, so that we can um, put them all in one or two areas. And then the other areas are the non-COVID patients. Now, you know, once in a while, we have a patient who comes to the COVID space that ends up ruling out or probably doesn't have it. And so we have to make sure we're separating all the patients, of course, and not exposing anyone. And we're doing this in a safe way. And you always hear these reports of someone who went to the non-COVID area and ends up not having any symptoms, and then you check their labs, they look a little bit in that direction, or they get a chest x-ray, and they have, so it, because there's asymptomatic disease out there, um, you know, my sense is that a lot of people in New York have this disease and might not know they have it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'll, we have a very, very low threshold for ruling, for thinking a patient may have COVID, because we're realizing um, it's, it's somewhat ubiquitous. Yeah. The supply chain is is going okay for you, as far as you know so far. I mean, you're not having to bring your own gowns and your own gloves to work every day. We haven't. We haven't yet. Um, they are trying to do things to con- conserve in reasonable ways um, that I think are totally reasonable. And um, so far, uh, what I've seen is we haven't run out um, or aren't close to running out, and that they're on top of getting enough to come in. Uh, that said, you know. We obviously, it would be terrible if we lost, if we didn't have enough PPEs or didn't have enough ventilators. So um, I am very impressed by our um, state leadership, actually. Uh, Governor Cuomo stepped up and um, filled a leadership gap in a lot of ways, I think, and is speaking to this, the importance of us doing everything we can to reduce the mortality of this pandemic. We know it's going to kill a lot of, a lot of people around the world, a lot of Americans. And if we can reduce that number, we should do whatever we can to do it. And um, so I'm impressed, impressed that he's focused on that. And he's highlighting some of the long-term issues that will happen if, if, you know, it continues to get worse, um, which, which will include maybe running out of some resources. So hopefully we can stay on top of that. Few things bring the world together, really, like a global pandemic. It's uh, it's a little heartbreaking to see the the disease 
spread, especially in lower resourced countries. I mean, we're, we're one of the highest resource countries in the world and we are struggling. So one can only imagine what it's like for places like India and Africa uh, and any of those areas that struggle on a daily basis when not having the pandemic. So it's such a good point. You, even here in New York, we have, I think it's 75 to 80,000 homeless people, around 94% live in shelters, right? Um, We have a very robust shelter system, which is pretty impressive in some ways, but think of them. You think of the public school systems that serve as a way for for low-income people to be able to go to work because their kids are at school and get food at school and take away all these resources. You know, it's easy for me to stay at home. But for so many of them, it's hard for them. And then you compare that to a third world country, I mean, what, 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 what can we expect, right? So, um, yeah. Okay, two more questions. In your daily practice now, you know, lots of centers where testing is available. They have some outpatient testing, but uh, a common day for you, if you see somebody with minimal symptoms, normal vitals, minimal disease, you're testing or not testing? Um, typically, if they have minimal symptoms, and we think they are safe to go home, we will, we will send them home um, with, with strict quarantine discussion and strict return precautions, but won't test. Won't test. So you're kind of conserving that resource for patients that are having to be admitted? As of today, yeah. But I, every, the testing is, seems to be expanding all the time. You know, I wish it was two months ago that it expanded. Sure. And when you send people home who are stable to go home, you know, there's been some discussion back and forth about whether we should be covering people with antibiotics and treating for, you know, atypical pneumonia, those kinds of things. Are you generally providing them with some kind of coverage just in case? I think there's some practice variation there, but often I see folks, um, it seems like a lot of folks are treating with um, antibiotics, both at home and when they admit these patients. Um, Unclear. And then last question. Is there anything else you want to tell people, something you wish you would have known earlier on or something you want to just share with us? I guess two things. One is, as scary as this is, and I wake up every day and then realize that this corona world we live in is a real world and it wasn't a nightmare and it hits me again every day. Um, And we're living in a different world, but there's silver linings to this. And it's how people, society, New York, medicine is coming together. It's really remarkable. It's a place, time. You, you mentioned it earlier, Sam. It was, you hit it on the head. It's when humanity comes together and sees each other and helps each other. And so we need to see those benefits and expand on them and you know, love each other, care for each other, and um, be focused on helping each other right now. It's so critically important. It's, in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, the other practical thing I would say is this stuff is changing every day. What we know now, we're going to know, we we know so much more now than we did a week or two ago. And a week or two from now, we're going to know so much more. So um, if you're going to be out there taking care of these patients, focus so much of your time on constantly learning. You have to, because we owe that to our patients. We owe it to our patients to know what the most current information is and to know it in a way that really allows you to apply it to your patients. you're constantly going to be relearning that from day to day. 
So get ready for that. Well, thanks again to Dr. Habush for taking the time to speak with us about MD Calc and these new tools that are coming out. And thank you for listening. Remember, everything is always available to you at ebmedicine.net. Please take a look at that COVID-19 article and the gigantic update that it just underwent. And as always, if you have questions, we would love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Sam Mishu.